Good morning, Grace Church family. I am so honored to be here sharing in this esteemed pulpit. I told your pastor, there's a rumor that's going around New York that your pastor is one of the greatest preachers in the New York Ministry Network. Y'all must be pretty good if God loves you that much. <laughs> We've known each other for an awfully long time. Paul and I were world missionaries for 25 years, and now we've been U.S. missionaries for 15 years. And I am privileged to be one of your missionaries. I read on a Dove chocolate, which you know that's where you go for all the wisdom. Looking back is only for time travelers. Well, I'm going to do some time traveling this morning. I want to take you back to when Paul and I were first appointed as world missionaries. It was 1987, and we were called to French-speaking West Africa. And, you know, with the Assemblies of God, we raise our support by visiting churches. So for almost 18 months, we went to over 200 churches. Imagine being prayed for over and over again. Oh, the beauty of the church as it sends out its missionaries. But, you know, when we started, we didn't know many pastors. We'd call, they'd like, Paul who? <laughs> we weren't sure we could raise our funds, and Africa felt so very far away. Have you ever felt like your dream, your vision, the thing God wanted you to do was just so far away? Well, it was a Sunday night in January 1988, we attended Bill Bear's church in Richmond Hill, Queens. And let me tell you, church 35 years ago was a little more rigid than it is today. When we got to his church, we were told we were going to march in while the piano was playing up onto the, up onto the platform, and we'd sit in assigned seats. And Brother Bear was a little bit intimidating, German gentleman. Rumor was you better preach from the King James Version. We don't know if it's true or not, but we did it just in case. It's the only church I went to and didn't take my three- and five-year-old children. I didn't want anything to go wrong. <laughs> While we waited for the service to begin, he needed to run some errands. So we sat in his office, and there was a coffee table. And on that coffee table was a copy of the Pentecostal Evangel. It was Assemblies of God magazine, and on the cover was the title of evangelist and radio preacher C.M. Ward's article, How Far is Far? Ward talks about the prodigal son in Luke 15, and when the father saw him far off. We're sitting in that office, and we have an impossible challenge. Africa was very far away. Remember, this is pre-internet days. Paul began to weep. We'd been married about seven years, and I had never seen him cry before. And as a good wife, I started to get worried. <laughs> I said to him, babe, you got to pull it together. Brother Bear's going to be back any minute. Well, he tried. He kept wiping those tears away. But raising our support seemed impossible. And Africa felt so very far away. So as he looked at those words, how far is far? He wept. Well, Brother Bear came back into the office, led us onto the platform, and my Paul continued to wipe tears away. 
And as he went to the microphone to speak, Brother Bear leaned over and said to me, God is reconfirming his call tonight. And from that service, our support began to grow. That distant call became a reality. In chapter 15, Luke tells us that the religious leaders were complaining about the kind of people gathering about Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. I don't know how you handle criticism or what you might say. I'm thinking maybe I'd say, hey, God loves everybody and so should you. It sounds so weak. <laughs> but Jesus responds by telling three stories. Stories about lost things that were found. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. In the story of the lost son, and you know this story well, father's got two sons. And the younger son asked his father to give him his share of the state. Luke 15, 11, Jesus tells us the father divides his property between his two sons. And the younger son goes off on a, to a distant country and he squanders his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there's a famine in the whole country. And the son who's living in a foreign country, I don't know how well he spoke the language. But he's so desperate, he takes a job feeding pigs. Now back home, he's the son of a wealthy, respected man. He grew up in a fancy house, lots of land, servants to care for it all. And now he's an étranger, he's a foreigner. And he's living in a foreign country that has experienced a famine with a collapsing economy, and no one will help him. Jesus tells us, when he came to his senses. Do you remember when you came to your senses? <laughs> I remember. I was nine years old and I came to my senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going back to father. And I'm going to say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like a hired servant. So he got home and he went to his father. Now in the New International Version, the story is called The Parable of the Lost Son. But I grew up hearing this story called The Prodigal Son. The word prodigal comes from Latin for lavish. From the same Latin word, we get the word prodigious. Colossal, immense, enormous, huge. And when our grandson Riley was three years old, my husband taught him the word prodigious. And they'd look at each other and go, prodigious. <laughs> well, see, hear a three-year-old look at his ice cream. Hmm, prodigious. <laughs> well, prodigal means lavish, but it can be used two ways. It can be either negative or positive. It can be extravagantly wasteful, like the prodigal son, who wasted his inheritance in wild living. Or it can be bountiful, lavish, unsparing. New York City pastor and author Tim Keller wrote a book on this parable, and he called it the parable God, or the prodigal God. Not wasteful, but lavish, unsparing. Romans 8.32, Paul writes, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So how will he not also along with Jesus graciously, bountifully, lavishly, unsparingly 
give us all things. In our story of the lost son, Jesus, Jesus, the beloved son of God, says, while the son was still far away, father saw him. And he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Oh, the lavish, prodigious love of the father. Now, this father has two sons, and when the oldest, you're an oldest child like I am, I always say that's why I'm so good at being bossy. (laughs) The oldest, faithful, hardworking son, he comes near the house. When he comes in, he's coming from working in his father's field, and he hears music and dancing. He's wiping the sweat off his brow, and he hears a party. So he goes to one of the servants. He doesn't go to his father. He goes to a servant, and he says, what's going on here? And the servant says, your brother's come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Luke 15, 28 says, the older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father, his gracious bountiful, loving father goes out to him and pleads with him to come in. But he answered his father and said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could party with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Oh, my son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Tim Keller says that a good, loving older brother would have gone out looking for his younger brother and brought him home. And that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus did for you. Jesus, the perfect son of the father. If you've seen me, you have seen the father. My father and I are one. He is the perfect son. And he's the perfect older brother to you and I. He laid down his life for us. He took off heaven's royal garments. And he clothed himself with our broken humanity so that through his death and his resurrection, he made a way home to Father for you and I. And then, if that's not enough, he sends his spirit to dwell in us so that you can actually have the mind of Christ. You can walk in his spirit. You have heaven's power and authority working in and through you. What lavish love! While the father was still a long way off, his father saw him. Your heavenly father sees you, and he delights in you. One of the times my husband was in the hospital, 
my son was coming to visit. And my husband was telling everyone, my son's coming, my son's, I got to get back home because my son is coming. One day I was praying after Paul passed away, and I thought, Father, do you feel like that? When I come into your presence, when I open my word and I come to pray, are you saying, look, Julie's coming, my daughter is coming, Oh, your father delights in you. How he loves you. Hmm. You know what I'm wondering, though, this morning? How far is too far? <laughs> you see, the father's looking into the distance. As I age, my eyesight's not that great. Looking, looking into the horizon. Maybe he goes every day and he's looking out there for his son, but he doesn't see him. Suddenly, there comes that moment when the father can see his son. What's that point where the son goes from being unseen to seen? How far is just too far? Well, Psalm 139 tells us, with our heavenly father, there is nowhere you can go from his spirit. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. I rise on the wings of the dawn. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand holds me fast. You can't run too far for God to see you. The Father sent his beloved son, Jesus, Heaven's darling went all the way to Calvary because not even death on the cross was too far for Jesus to go to save you from your sins. Oh, how the Father loves you. There's no such thing as too far with God. But what about us? What about you? How far are you willing to go to be like Jesus? How far are you willing to go to share your faith with someone else, to bring others home to Father? Now, if you're like me, maybe you're thinking, oh, I'll go as far as necessary till I read the fine print. And I think, what did I just commit myself to? What if it means changing? What if it takes you out of your comfort zone? How far is too far? You know, over the years that we were missionaries in Africa, we visited a lot of churches in the U.S., and I can't tell you how many people told me Africa was too far for them. One pastor said when he was in Bible school, he wouldn't even go to the altar during mission services because he didn't want to be called to Africa. I'm not sure about that theology. But you have a line that you've drawn saying, ooh, that's too far. That's asking too much. Talk about missions mobilization. That's what I was raised on. Missions, what does it mean? And I've always heard it's this. We're called to give, to pray, and to go. Somewhere along the line over the years, it has started to sound like some people give, some people pray, and some people go. But we're all called to give, to pray, and to go. You don't get to pick and choose. Well, obviously, I can't go to Africa or India. I have a job and family obligations here, so I'll give. I'm a little short on cash this week, so I'm going to be praying. No. We're all called to live a life of generosity. Forgive 
and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. Our prodigal, lavish, generous God, he loves a cheerful giver. And you know this. Missionaries to Timbuktu and believers in Syracuse, New York, you're all called to give. No believer is excused from praying for missions. Matthew 9, 37 to 38, Jesus looks out over this crowd, and he's just so moved with compassion. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know where they're going, and they don't know the way to eternal life. So Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Missions is all about the harvest, and prayer is always the starting point. Do you want to be part of what God is doing around the world? Pray for laborers. The Holy Spirit prepares the harvest. He softens hearts so the seed of the gospel falls on good ground. And you participate when you pray for the lost. When you pray for salvation for Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Native Americans, and secularists around the world and in your neighborhood. And the incredible mystery is God listens to us. The creator of the universe, the Lord God Almighty who spoke worlds into existence, listens when you talk to him. And he invites you in Psalm 2.8, ask me. And I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Just ask me, I'll give you the nations. You know, in the Old Testament, the name Yahweh is so holy, they won't even say it. God's so holy, they don't want to say his name. And then Jesus, he comes, Emmanuel, God with us. And he calls us his brothers and his sisters. He brings us home to Father. The creator of the universe has become your Father. And Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father who's in heaven. Paul says it's through the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Oh, Daddy, Father. Every believer, every disciple is invited into intimacy with the Father. Oh, look at my girl. She's coming to spend time with me. Look at my son. He wants to be in my presence. And as our hearts reflect his heart, we ask our Father, Oh, Lord of the harvest, send out workers into your field. And, of course, we get the go in missions from Jesus' own words. After he had risen from the dead, what did Jesus tell his disciples up on that mountain in Galilee? He said, all authority and heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations, and I'll be with you always. Jesus is with you when you tell others everything he's done for you. Luke tells us in Acts 1 that Jesus said, wait for the gift my father's promised. You don't have to ask me twice to wait for a gift. Wait for the gift my father promised because you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Pentecost. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that drives worldwide evangelism. Receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be his witnesses, both near and far. Missions is both geographically near and far. It's Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. It's Syracuse and the whole world. It's culturally near and far. It's those who are like us. We just click with them. And those that are very different from us. Now, China is both geographically far and culturally far. It's going to take an airplane to get there and language skills if you're going to share the gospel effectively. But a U.S. military base in the Philippines, it's geographically far. But for Americans, it's culturally near. We have Teen Challenge, Foster Care. They're both, for the most part, geographically near and culturally near. But reaching the ever-growing Muslim population in Syracuse, you won't need an airplane. They're geographically near, but they're culturally far. And you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and get some cross-cultural skills to share the gospel credibly. I brought a lot of stuff on my table. Don't make me take anything home. You grab some stuff and begin to pray for your Muslim neighbors. And I know this because first service, you can't, I can't tell you how many people told me about their Muslim neighbors. Mm, God's calling you. Because, you know, I'll tell you this. Muslims in America don't think that Christians are very serious about their faith. Did you know that? This is the reason we aren't talking about Jesus. Convince your Muslim neighbors and your co-workers that your relationship with Jesus really is the most important thing in your life by talking about him more than anything else. I've seen uh, in Chicago, we've got this near our airport, there's a major Muslim billboard ad campaign taking place major cities across the U.S., in bold letters on a green background, which green is that holy color for Muslims, one billboard says, Muslims love Jesus. Questions about Jesus? Call 1-800-ISLAM. If Christians don't become bold in sharing their faith, talking about Jesus, and clearly defining who he is for this generation... Muslims will do the job for us, and they will call him a prophet. Hindus will define Jesus as one of many ways to God. Atheists will reject his deity and extol his message of love. You have to love Jesus more than you love anything else. You have to talk about Jesus everywhere and with everyone more than you talk about anything else. That's the go in the gospel. Well, for our family, in 2007, our Africa ministry pivoted to New York City as God used a French-speaking Ivory Coast pastor, a dear friend who was pastoring churches in Harlem and Newark. He called us. He said, I'm in Newark. We said, New York or Newark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paul and I went to New York City as missionaries with cross-cultural purpose, we wanted to raise awareness of New York's enormous cross-cultural challenge 
to encourage and connect our ethnic pastors and churches because they are our partners in this great challenge. I'm thankful God is calling people here to help us reach unreached people groups and to resource believers to effectively witness to their culturally different neighbors. And we've done that for over 15 years through forums and workshops like our Who's Our Neighbor conferences. And then in 2017, my Paul, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma cancer. It's a very painful blood cancer with bone lesions, collapsing vertebrae. But for three years, we experienced the grace and the presence of God in a way more powerful than I knew was possible. Until March 2020, when my dear Paul said, Julie, I just want to close my eyes, wake up and see Jesus. And on March 4, 2020, his faith became reality. But my life and ministry had to pivot again. Our superintendent, Dwayne Durst, called me and he said, pray about taking Paul's place as Intercultural Ministries Director for our network. I said yes before he could finish asking the question. But as I've grieved, I'll tell you, God has opened ministry opportunities. I'm shocked every single day. I'm pinching myself. Am I really living this life? Ministry with our New York ethnic pastors, cultural intelligence workshops in New York and other districts. I'm on a task force for credentialing, language seminars for second language speaking pastors, coordinating other intercultural ministries directors, participating in conferences with the Office of Ethnic Relations. And one of the sweetest surprises has been new ministry with French-speaking African pastors in New York and across the nation. I regularly get phone calls from French-speaking African pastors asking me how they can connect with the Assemblies of God. One dear brother in Texas spoke Swahili. His daughter translated everything. He said, how do I join the AG team? <laughs> I've been asked to help other districts with their French ministry training. I'm working with district schools of ministry in Ohio, Minnesota, Illinois, collaborating with North Texas, getting resources in French, in Swahili, and now other needed languages. In fact, I had a call from the uh, Alaska School of Ministry, and they said to me, we hear there's a Julie that's helping districts with credentialing courses in other languages. Are you that Julie? Yes, I am. <laughs> We're working on Samoan right now. It's as if everything Paul and I have done and learned and experienced over 35 years in missions has led me to this moment. Because God takes everything you're willing to put on the table and he'll use it for his glory. So my mission is to continue promoting New York as one of the world's great mission fields, filled with unreached and underserved people groups needing a credible gospel witness. That's why I'm doing workshops like we had yesterday. We focus on four skills you need to share your faith credibly with your culturally different neighbors. The first and probably the most important is your motivation. Because we naturally gravitate toward people most like us, who think like us, dress like us, make us feel comfortable, make us feel important. The go in the gospel compels us to take the good news to those outside these church walls, to those who make us uncomfortable, people we don't understand. But you have to want to. It takes persistence. 
And you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Second capability, you have to learn something about your neighbor, their culture, their language, their faith. And you have to know about yourself and your preferences and your biases. And you have to know the Bible because you can't confuse God's kingdom and his values with your personal American values. Third thing, you have to make a plan. If you want to participate in the harvest, you can't just go about your day unaware of those around you. Start your day with prayer for everyone you'll encounter. And then be prepared for what someone has called get to the God question. It's easy to stand in line at the grocery store and talk about the weather or complain about anything and everything. But think of yourself, you're on assignment like the Apostle Paul said. I was determined to know nothing about you except for Jesus, his crucifixion and resurrection. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. When you pray, you align your heart with your Father's heart. It was during Ramadan, I was in New York City, and I was using a daily prayer guide to pray for Muslims. And on that day, I prayed specifically for West African Muslims in New York City. That evening, my Uber driver was Mohammed from Guinea in West Africa. As we talked half English, half French, a little franglais, he said to me, you know, Christianity and Islam are really the same. There's just a little difference. I said to him, oh, Mohammed, that little difference is Jesus, and he'll make all the difference in the world. I had a 40-minute Uber ride where I had the opportunity to tell him God's plan for his life. And a friend, Rosemary Brown, had just given me this beautifully wrapped gift. It was a Bible, but it was all beautiful in a gift bag, tissue paper. It was lovely, and I knew it was for Mohammed. So I said to him, Mohammed, I have a gift for you. He was stunned because it was his birthday. Coincidence or divine appointment? I said, when we got out, he put out both his hands to receive his birthday gift. And I said to him, Mohammed, must, God must love you very much to have sent me to you on your birthday to tell you about Jesus and to give you God's word. God hears us when we pray. How effective is prayer? From the 7th century to the 9th century, there were very few Muslim converts. In the late 20th century, Christian groups around the world began to pray earnestly for the salvation of Muslims, and Muslims have started coming to faith. In fact, in the last 22 years, more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus than the previous 1,200 years put together. If you want to be part of what God is doing, begin to pray for unreached people right here in Syracuse. And the final capability, you may have to change. You may have to set aside some of your preferences, like Jesus set aside his heavenly privileges because you have to love others more than you love your way of doing things, more than you love your politics, more than you love your opinions. How far is too far? 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul writes, Though I am free, and you know we Americans, we love our freedom. Though I'm free, 
and I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. A slave to everyone? Think about it. That's too far. But you see, Paul, Paul has experienced the prodigal, lavish love of the Father, and he's so free, he can set, freely set aside all of his rights for the sake of the gospel. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some, and I do it for the sake of the gospel so I can share in its blessings. To save some by all possible means Paul does it for the sake of the gospel so he can share in the blessings. Because there's a double benefit in proclaiming the gospel credibly. It's a blessing for the world, and it's a blessing for the church. Because it is the only way that the church will stay unpolluted from the things and the passions of this world and stay passionate and it's love and faith in Jesus. When we keep Jesus and his death and resurrection as our message without any add-ons, setting aside our opinions on things without eternal value, the church is strengthened and it's purified. <laughs> How far is too far? John 4 says, open your eyes and see the fields. Can you see the lost in your community? in your neighborhood? Do you know New York has been called the greatest missional challenge in our nation? We have almost one million Muslims living in New York. We have the highest number of mosques in the United States. 1.8 million Jewish people living in New York City. It's the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. We need cross-cultural workers for Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh populations. What about the nine Native American territories within the geographic New York boundaries? Only one has an Assemblies of God church. Abba, Father, send laborers to your harvest field. I'll tell you a secret about myself. Paul, was, Paul had more faith than I did, okay? Let's just say it that way. When he passed away, I got a little worried about finances. What if I goof everything up? And my first thought, and this is embarrassing for a missionary, but my very first thought was, maybe I need to reduce our missions giving. <laughs> because fear makes you want to pull back. Now, your church excels in missions, but maybe you're like me. Maybe you had some worries. Maybe you had some fear. So you know what I did? I put on two missionary candidate, or two missionary associates. They only go for two years. I feared it was safe. <laughs> I gave God two years to come through for me. <laughs> I said, take that devil with your fear tactics. Now, your pastors and your church leaders have a great vision for missions. Just make sure you don't miss out on being part of it. And that brings us to the go. So as I get ready to close, I'm going to tell you a quote. I wrote this down during the worship. This quote I heard when we were youth pastors in Depew, New York, and um, we went to a youth pastor conference with Sid Griffith. He brought in Jonathan Gainsbourg. This quote burned deep into my heart, and it drives me still today. If everyone had the same passion for the lost that you have, would hell be empty or full? 
would hell be empty or full? Because you know a lot of times I'm counting on you all to do your part. But God's calling each of us to have that kind of passion for the lost. The kind of passion that took Jesus all the way to Calvary. So as I get ready to close, I'm going to ask you, will you be like Jesus, that perfect older brother, and bring others home to Father? Will you open your eyes and begin to see the lost that are all around you? They're just waiting for you to tell them about Jesus. Because your call to go to your neighbors and your coworkers is every bit as real as my call. Ask the Lord to give you opportunities every day to share your story of what Jesus has done for you with those he puts in your path each day. And if you'll do that, he promises to be with you. God bless you.